So I thought it fitting to, to continue on after the book of Philippians to yet another of what are called prison epistles. Books of the Bible that Paul wrote while he was in prison. This here, this book of Colossians, is yet another book of the Bible which is inspired by the Holy Spirit to deal specifically with the dangers of error within the church. In this case, the error was plaguing the church at Colossae. A church that consisted of both Gentiles, non-Jews, and Jews alike. And so their struggles, as we will see as we get into this book, were both worldly, a worldly philosophy, and then Judaizing tendencies, Christ plus works. On one hand, they had the temptation to fall back to their former life, to their former worldliness. And on the other hand, their struggle was a Judaizing legalism that was plaguing this church. Albert Barnes gives us some insight on the purpose of this letter to the Colossians. He says it was primarily to guard the church against the errors to which it was exposed. From the prevalence of false philosophy and, and a form of influence from these false teachers, Paul desired to assert the superior claims of Christianity over all philosophy and independence of, a, of the peculiar rituals, customs of the Jewish religion. And so in short, Paul, he writes this letter to tear down these, these false philosophies and to, to bring out the supremacy of Christianity, the supremacy of Jesus Christ. As we look at this book, we will see once again how serious God takes false teaching. How seriously He takes those who spread dangerous teachings in His church. This was the case for this church at Colossae. And, and this is the occasion for the letter. It's the very reason for the letter. The founding member of this church, his name is Epaphras. He actually journeyed to Rome. He, he, made, he made the trip to Rome to find Paul. And as he finds Paul, he, he desires to employ his help. Paul, he desires Paul to help this church from the plague of, of false teaching. This church, they, they lacked maturity. They lacked a, a strong knowledge of the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And Epaphras, he desired to, to grow them up in the faith. History tells us of Epaphras that he was converted through hearing the gospel in Ephesus. And in doing so, after hearing the gospel, he plants this church in Colossae. He was a faithful brother and he cared much about this specific church. Paul lets us know the heart of this man, Epaphras, in Colossians chapter 4, verse 12. It says there that Epaphras, who is one of you, is a servant of Christ Jesus. He greets the church, and then he goes on to tell us of the heart of Epaphras. He says there, he's always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured of the will of God. This was his prayer. This was his desire for the church. This is why he traveled to meet with Paul. This is why, why as the book of Philemon tells us, that he is now a fellow prisoner with Paul. That Epaphras 
cares so much about this church that he has sought the Apostle Paul to, to write this letter to mature them. That they would stand mature. That they would be complete. That they would be fully assured of the will of God. And so this is the very reason for this letter. To mature these believers. And Paul will do that through exposing what is false and exalting what is true of Jesus Christ. Paul, as I have spoke of already, he's writing this from prison in Rome. Remember, he's under house arrest. It's, it's the exact same setting of the book at Philippians. He's, he's under house arrest. He's chained to a Roman guard. There's a guard that just one after another, they come and they chain themselves to Paul. And he's, he's paying rent for this house and this is where he finds himself. Many are coming in and being influenced by him. And Paul, his prison ministry is immense. It's not the type of prison ministry that you might be used to. He's not the inmate, or he's, he's not ministering to the inmates. He's an inmate himself. But nonetheless, he, he's using this opportunity, this opportunity in prison, for the very best, to the very best. We know that people are being converted. Roman soldiers are being converted. People in Caesar's own household are being converted. And we also know he's in, inspired by the Holy Spirit to write letters to the churches, continuing in his office of capital A apostles, strengthening the churches, knowing that God had him in that place for a very specific purpose. Remember what he said in the very first chapter of the book of Philippians, to, that to live is Christ and death is gain. And, and Paul knew that he was still alive, and so he still had service to the Lord. And so even though he finds himself chained to a Roman guard, he seeks to serve the Lord, and he does that through writing letters to the churches. Remember what he wrote to the Philippians also in that very first chapter. In verse 12 he says, I... I want you to know, brethren, speaking to the Philippian church, that my circumstances, what are his circumstances? The fact that he is in prison. Have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. So Paul sees his, his imprisonment is actually for the progress of the gospel. That it is a good thing. It, it's causing the gospel to go forth. The people are being saved and the churches are being established. And this is what this letter to the Colossian church intends to do. To root out heirs, to exalt the nature of Christ, to call these believers to the surpassing worth of Christ, to call them to reject the false views of Jesus, and to cling to the one true gospel. His imprisonment is for the betterment of even this church of the Colossians. Paul writes this church not knowing them personally. Colossians 2.1 tells us that he's never met them face to face. Typically, Paul writes in a very personal way as people that he has met, the people that he knows. To this church, he doesn't know them. He's never met them face to face. Yet, as he writes this letter, you will see that it's as if he knows them. He knows them because of their common faith. He knows them because of their love for Jesus Christ. He knows them because of Epaphras. He's come and he's told them, told Paul all about them. So in light of what we've learned from Epaphras, in light of what he has learned from Epaphras, Paul now writes this letter to the Colossian church. And the very first verse reads 
like this. In verse 1, Paul says he is an apostle of Jesus Christ. An apostle. Paul starts his letter off with his credentials. He does this and he does it often. You read his letters, you see this. He, he, he always begins with his credentials. And it's what he must begin with. The fact that he's been given a special commission from Jesus Christ himself. The fact that he is a capital A apostle. One who has seen the risen Lord. Christ has given this man authority. He has given him an authority to establish the local churches in Asia Minor. And that's what this letter seeks to do. This special call on Paul's life. This specific authority that Christ gave him, it's exactly why Epaphras has come to him. It's exactly why he has sought out his help, because he believes that the church will, will listen to Paul. Because he knows that Paul has authority directly from the Lord. This, this, this is a man that the church must listen to. As we get into this book, as we seek to know what God has for us, we too need to, to, to have the heart like Epaphras. We must listen to the Apostle Paul. Epaphras knows that it is Paul who can destroy these philosophical arguments of the enemy. It is Paul who will exalt Jesus Christ. It is Paul who has authority that extends to the church. And it extends to the church to this very day. Please hear me this morning. As we come to the introduction of this book, Paul, he is under attack in our modern world. Many have put Paul's words beneath Jesus Christ. Many have become red-letter Christians even if they don't know that they are. Many have even denied the inspiration of Paul. Many, when you quote Paul, will say, yes, but Jesus. That, that doesn't work. Paul, he begins his letter letting us know that he doesn't write on his own authority. He doesn't write on his own behalf. That these words, they, they have merit, they have authority, they mean something to the church because he is a messenger of Jesus Christ. He's an ambassador of Christ. He's inspired by the Holy Spirit. He is writing the very word of God to the church. So when you read Paul, when you read this letter, you can be certain that it's a w the will of Jesus Christ. And you're not going to find contradiction between Paul and Christ. The scriptures are all inspired of God. One is not put above the other. This is the very words of Christ to the church. Notice something from this first verse. He writes with Timothy. We all should know Timothy very well, right? We've, we've talked about him a lot over the years. He was a young man in the faith, a, a pastor. He was like Paul in many ways. But he wasn't exactly like Paul. Paul was his mentor. He was his father in the faith. But notice what's missing from this text. There's no special title attributed to Timothy. Nothing there. No, no giving Timothy the same authority that Paul has. 
There's something there for us to learn that, that Paul, he is unlike Timothy. He is unlike you and me. We are brothers and sisters in Christ, right? We're like Timothy, our brother. But Paul, he is different than us. He is a one-of-a-kind, capital A, apostle from Christ. He's a, an apostle, not according to our will, not according to his will, but it says here, according to the will of God. And so he makes it clear to this church, this, this letter you're about to read, it's a message from God. It's the word of God. It's a message from the head of the church, Jesus Christ, to his church. In history, it was to the Colossians. In our day, it's to Christian Fellowship Church. I hope as we explore this letter, we have this same sentiment in our heart. That we look at Paul's words with reverence. We look at Paul's words and say, we must submit to those words. We look at Paul's words and we want to come under them as, as they are the very word of God. In verse 2, Paul lets us know who he is writing to and what his wishes are. In verse 2, he says, to the saints, to the faithful brethren in Christ. He calls them their saints. This is not a saying just for strong believers or those who are super good, as we kind of think in our modern, modern idea of what it means to be a saint, or even the super spiritual. But this is a way of saying to all the born-again believers, to all the true believers there in Colossae. He calls them saints. Much like, about, like what we learned about in 1 John chapter 2 on Sunday evenings where John said that we were all the anointed of God. That if you have the Holy Spirit, you are His anointed. Much like we read about in the scripture of a kingdom of priests. That we're all priests. That we all have access to God through, His perfect, through the perfect shed blood of Jesus Christ. And so similar to these... We are all His saints. If you are a born-again believer, if you are a, a blood-bought one, you truly are this morning a saint. And that simply means that you are a set-apart one. You are a holy one. You are a sanctified one. You are a separate people. That is what He is saying. If you are truly His, you are God's people that He has cut out of the world and made His own. That is what it means to be a saint. And this is true of you if you are his today. And that is why Paul, he addresses the believers there as saints. He says something else about them. He calls them the faithful brethren. Again, this is an address to all of them. And all, the, all the men and women of the church alike. He says to the faithful brethren. Paul, he, he uses the masculine when he addresses the church because male leadership is implied through that. He, he's writing to the elders. He's, he's, he's ex, his expectations is, is that men will be leading the church, that the church is under male headship. But at the same time, in the same way as you, you read through the scriptures, it, it talks about Jesus feeding 5,000. 
Well, included in that 5,000, they're just counting the men. Included in that 5,000 are the, the women and the children. This is first century thinking. Amen. And so as we look to Paul writing to the faithful brethren, he's not only saying this, this is addressed to the leadership of the church, but it's also addressed to the entire church, to men and women alike. And he says, the faithful so this is another way of saying that all of the people, all of the true believers of the church. And he calls them the faithful. That is a way of saying that they have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. They have not bent the knee to a pagan philosophy that's plaguing that church. They are those who have believed on the one true gospel. While they are immature believers... While they do have worldly tendencies, while they have some temptations to their previous life, while they have some lies that have infiltrated their thinking, while even their view of Christ is somewhat subpar, Paul still sees them as believers. Why? Because he believes that they have saving Faith. He, he believes that they have believed on the, the one true gospel. Hear me this morning. We are never perfect in our belief. We always have room to grow. You have room to grow here today. Each and every one of us. We all, we all have areas where we need to be more and more like Christ. We, have, we need to have our minds more and more renewed to the word of God. This was true of the church at Colossae. They needed to become more Christ-like. They needed to have their thinking renewed by the Word of God. And yet Paul still sees them as faithful brethren. Faithful brethren. He affirms them as brothers in the faith and, and wishes them the greatest blessings known to man. That's how he finishes up there in verse 2. He says, grace and peace from God that comes to us through Christ Jesus. This morning as we move on to verse 3, it really is the, the heart of my message. I know, getting into the heart of my message at 20 minutes in. <laughs> Paul is going to give this church some hard truth in this book. There's going to be some, some rebukes in this letter. Really, this letter as a whole will be a rebuke to the church. But that being said, as is Paul's custom, before he gets to the hard pill to swallow, he's going to bring out the good. He's going to bring out what they are doing right in the Lord. He's going to bring out what, what they've been doing faithful, what, how they have been faithful. First, Paul is going to encourage them and what they're doing right before he hits them with the hard truth. This is Paul's way of softening the blow. This is Paul's way of keeping them from becoming discouraged. You give too, too much truth, too fast. If you, if you just hammer people over the head with truth, they will become discouraged. So Paul, he... He wants to lift up the church. He wants to build up the church. He wants to let them know he's not just a nagging critic. He wants to bring out the, the good that they are doing. 
He has their best in mind. In other words, Paul brings this out in the beginning so that they know he truly cares about them. That he loves them. That he sees what the Lord is doing in them. And that he is thankful for them. To go straight to the struggle would demoralize this church. It could easily lead to a woe is me attitude. It could easily cause them to throw up their hands with frustration. It could cause them to slide further and further into error. It could actually have the exact opposite effect. It could cause them to to accept the lies and reject the truth. So he seeks first to commend them for their faith. Tell them that he is thankful for them. And then... He will get to the rest of the letter. Look at what he says about them in verses 3 and 4. In verse 3, he says, we give thanks to God. We give thanks to God for this church. And he says there, he's praying always for you. So Paul, he's, he's thankful for this church and he, he shows it. How does he show his thankfulness for this church? He, he remembers them in his prayers. What is he thankful for? Well, verse 4 tells us their their faith in Jesus Christ. Not only their faith, but also their love for all the saints. This is what Paul is grateful for. This is what he wants to say first. This is how he sought to, to build them up. That they may be encouraged to receive the truth throughout the rest of the letter. Look at that last part of verse 4. He says there, of your love for all the saints. What is Paul connecting in these two verses? He's, he's connecting their faith, or really right here in verse 4, he's connecting their faith in Jesus Christ to their love for all the saints. This is what gave him confidence that they were true believers that they had truly exercised faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. How does he know that? It's, it's, it's been expressed in the fruit in their lives. One of the main ways that believers show that they've truly believed on the Lord Jesus Christ is their love for all the saints. Love for the brethren. Love for the body of Christ. Love for the church. You're actually going to see this throughout the New Testament. Just study the New Testament and see how often God characterizes His people with love for the church. Jesus said it. In John chapter 13, verse 35, He says, By this, all people will know that you are My disciples. He was speaking to His disciples, but it can be applied to all Christians for all time. How do they know that we are His disciples? How do we know that that we are His church? Jesus said, if we have love for one another. And what Jesus was talking about there was the disciples' love for one another. So the church's love for one another. John put it in an opposite way. In 1 John 2.11, he says, But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness. Love is a defining characteristic of the believer. All who have saving faith will have love, and they'll specifically have love for Christ's
people. Paul writes this church, the church at Colossae, telling them that he's thankful for them. He's thankful for their faith. He's thankful for their faith and the fruit of their faith, which is the love for all saints. So Paul, he writes to these saints. He's thankful for their love. He's thankful for their faith. This morning as we come to the close of the exposition or or the scripture that we're going to look at this morning, I want to ask you some questions of how we apply the very introduction of this letter to our lives. First, if Paul was writing us a letter, if it was addressed to the saints at Christian Fellowship Church, would he How would he start the beginning of his letter to us? What would he commend this church here for? Would it be these two core aspects of the Christian faith? Would he praise us for our faith in Jesus Christ? Would he be thankful for our love for all the saints? Would he rebuke us because we don't have love for all the saints, but maybe Maybe people in this corner of the church. Paul, he's commending them for all all the saints. Love for all of the saints. The whole body. Not just my clique. Not just the people that I like the most. Not the ones that just agree with me on everything. Not the ones that talk like me. Act like me. Look like me. Nobody looks like me. (laughs) But all the saints. Paul was writing to us, if, if we had an emissary go and see the Apostle Paul in prison, what would that man tell him about our church? They have love for all the saints. They're knit together. They have a great unity. You can just see the love of that body. They're faithful. They they have believed in the one true gospel. They're not swerving to the left or to the right. They have rejected the lie in their heart. They've clung tightly to Jesus Christ as their beloved Savior. They're not tolerating false teaching. Would, Would Paul see these two characteristics in us? Do we have a strong faith? In the one true way, Jesus Christ, do we show others the love that Christ commanded of us so that all can see that we are his disciples? The second point of application that I I want to get to this morning is what can we do as believers when it comes to thinking through the way Paul speaks to people. Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. I think it's astonishing that he said that. He's really one of the, the, I mean, the only man that you look at at Scripture that could say something like that. Um, in his, in his life, after he's been redeemed by Christ, he says, imitate me as 
I imitate Christ. And so we can look to Paul and, and we can see that this is what God would expect of us. Sometimes Paul was incredibly sharp with his words. He did this specifically when it mattered most. When people's souls were in danger. Much like yelling fire in a burning building. If, people, if Paul believed that people were on the precipice of hell, he was incredibly firm with his words. If you need evidence of that, see the book of Galatians. In Titus, in the very first chapter, he tells, them, he tells Titus there to rebuke false teachers sharply. There were times where Paul was incredibly strong with his words. These believers at Colossae, I don't believe, were on the brink of hell. They were being influenced by ungodly views, but Paul knew that they were not bewitched by them. They were not blinded by them. He writes this way because he is confident that they are in the faith and that they will actually receive his words. This morning we can learn from the Apostle Paul. What point am I making? Well, people are full of pride. Are we not? We all by nature believe we're right in our own eyes. If you're saying not me, Pastor, well, I'll talk to your spouse. <laughs> we often think that our way of thinking is absolutely best in life. We struggle to hear correction. We struggle to hear rebuke. We need to read the book of Proverbs more, where it tells us there that a fool cannot hear correction. Paul even told Timothy that Scripture has been breathed out for our correction. Even though we should receive correction, this is not reality, right? Each and every one of you today should be able to receive correction. But often, we can't. Often, we struggle to do so. Paul, knowing that people can barely hear any correction, delivers this letter in such a way that it will be received. And this is something this morning that we should all learn. Do you build up the church with your words? Do you see the good that God is doing in people's lives? You know, next time you, you want to give some people some truth, next time you want people to change, stop for a moment and ask yourself, what is the good that God is doing in their life? What fruit do I see in their life? Remember the miracle of regeneration, the fact that, that God has taken a sinner who is dead in their trespasses and sin and given them a new heart, a new life in Christ. And so any good that we see in a person, this is literally Christ's work in them and it's something that can be commended something that should be celebrated it's the power of God working in a dead sinner it should be something that each and every one of us are grateful for and so I am sure that the people in the church you can find some good things in their life to talk about do we want people to grow do we want people to 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 deny to 
to turn away from lies? Yes. Paul wanted that for this church at Colossae. But he knew in order for them to receive his correction, he first needed to build them up by telling them of the good that God is doing in their life. Do you encourage people? Do you encourage the people of God? Do you encourage people in their, in their calling, in their service to the church, in their love for one another, in their faith of the Lord Jesus Christ? This is what we see Paul doing. And it's not just this letter. Think of the book of Philippians that we just left. He had some rebukes for that church, right? How did he start it? Commending them for their generosity, for, for their faith, for the fact that they stood with him. Oftentimes we, we fail to see what God is doing in people's life because we're unsatisfied with where they are at. We have an expectation in our heads that they need to be where we're at. <laughs> Why don't they get this? Why are they not able to act like me? That's called self-righteousness. How quickly we forget that we are those who are saved by amazing grace. The unmerited, unearned, undeserved favor of Almighty God found in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are saved by His grace and nothing else. Unless we forget the words of Christ, that we can do nothing apart from Christ. Know that it is only because of Christ that you are where you're at. And because it's all by the grace of God that you are who you are, we should be able to encourage. We should be able to see the good in people. We should be able to, to build up the church before we correct the church. Now, don't hear me wrong. If there is a major error, if there is something where you believe someone is running towards hell, you need to speak. You need to yell fire as if they were in a burning building. But if this is an area the church needs to grow in, and this is an area that, that you can walk alongside someone in, if this is an area where you can see God will have patience with people to grow in, please, build up before correction. Remember, as you speak to people, He has you where you are. He's given you the knowledge that He's given you. There's a saying, I've said it so many times, we all need to learn it. But for the grace of God, there go I. You have no reason to boast. You have no grounds to be proud. We can all be more encouraging. We can all be more charitable to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And by His grace, I hope we will be.